0: Thank you very much again for your reaction papers. Some of them bridge back to the introduction. A few concentrated on the main part of Chapter 4. I'll kind of consider those next time. Come on, Dallas, I want to pick up your paper. And um, in particular, this question that you had because it actually relates to what we were talking about yesterday with modernity and postmodernity just in general. So here's what he said. <clears throat> a question that comes to my mind is triggered by my experience with the world of alternative medicine. A big concern that I see is that typical modern medicine seems to be applying a model of modernity unlike alternative medicine, which generally employs a postmodern, holistic approach to the human body. Now, this was a very interesting insight. In fact, people have pointed out that one of the real um, indicators of a move to postmodernity is an increasing suspicion of standard medicine. So and, And partly... That's what that factor number one out of the four about uh, devotion to reason. So you just have herbs or something like that or or ancient formulas and you're not kind of working it out scientifically. But uh, did you want to say any more about that, uh, about this particular thing? The, there could be some scientific basis for it mm-hmm. as well, but no, that's I'm, I'm just clarifying. I'm not like crazy or... Well, what? Let, no, let me just tell you what is interesting about this is something like acupuncture. Now, two of our retired professors recently had strokes. Um, Dr. Nagel and Dr. G. Dr. G. Uh, is from Korea, North Korea, actually, and Dr. Nagel is Western. <coughs> After the strokes, Dr. G, after a couple of weeks, started getting acupuncture. Believe it or not, I mean, his left side was really paralyzed. He now, when I go over to see him, he now gets out of the chair and walks over and greets you or accompanies you to the door. (coughs) Dr. Nagel is still pretty immobile on his left side, especially with his hand. My son... Some of you know <clears throat> is actually at a professional golf college out in California. He hurt his back the other day, and the instructors there, at Dallas <clears throat> told him to go get acupuncture he's had trouble with his back before, and uh, he said it was just miraculous he couldn 't believe it. he said i and now uh, this what, what was interesting is the way he described it. He said, "Yeah, before what they would do is give me." Muscle relaxers and pain things, but this was just a completely different way to, way to do it. So uh, this and by the way, the reason I wanted to pick up this paper, this is an important point <clears throat> is there is no clean move between at least at this point between modernity and postmodernity. That is to say, at this point, there tends to be kind of an overlap. so in other words, you go get an MRI, and then you take ginseng. You know, at the same time, I mean. So it's not like wholesalely the people who are interested in acupuncture don't use Tylenol anymore, but you you, you tend to have this kind of overlap of the two things. So thank you. That was a a very interesting uh, observation that you made there. Now, what I'd like to do before we get to 4A and the addendum, and you guys had a lot of great questions, I want to kind of just go through the questions that you guys raised from the introduction. So let's just uh, take some of these now. Okay, Justin? You asked, um, uh, or you said that The scriptures also have a unity of theme, content, purpose, and finally the center of the scriptures is the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, Nick, sort of similarly, you questioned that. And you said, I really had some questions about one of the principles of interpretation. I don't see how understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ is a principle of interpretation. Well... Let me give you an example. <clears throat> when I was on sabbatical in the early 80s, I spent some time over in Basel, Switzerland, and I met a young American over there, a real nice guy, who was a dispensational millennialist. Now, the people who are like this <clears throat> believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of the scriptures. They believe the Bible is the word of God. They believe in Jesus. Here's what they don't believe. They don't believe that Jesus is the center and fulfillment of everything, and that, to quote 2 Corinthians 1.20, which in many ways is the most important passage in the Bible, as many as are the promises of God in him is the yes, they don't believe that. They believe that God has other promises to Abraham and Noachic covenant and all kinds of stuff like that, So, these promises from the Old Testament achieve their own fulfillment in their own way. And then Jesus is sort of another solution to the issue of the Gentiles, okay? To put it kind of unkindly, Jesus is kind of a side game to the central game of... God's promises to the Jews and the Holy Land and all the rest of that. That's why they tend to get worked up over what's happening in Israel. Now, you just got to make a decision here. Is Jesus the central thing so that all promises get oriented toward him? Or are there promises of God in the Old Testament for the Jews and then there's Jesus and the thing for the Gentiles and stuff like that, it'll make a huge difference to what you're doing with interpretation. And it's simply where you see him, so to speak, in the system. What was interesting in talking to this guy, he was a very good guy to talk to, <clears throat> you, you knew that you had complete agreement on sort of the divine and human nature of scripture. And you could kind of agree on nothing in the interpretation of passages. So, this is why this is why something like inspiration and inerrancy doesn't actually get you very far. It may get you some stuff. But as a matter of fact, it's all about how you put it all together, not about, you know, what you're simply going to say About the source, or something like that. So uh, it was interesting how those two uh, papers sort of corresponded to one another. Um, Hutchison. When there is not seemingly a basis for pure objective study of the scriptures, how does one combat relativism and postmodernism without becoming overwhelmed by the many facets of interpreting scripture? We're going to be creeping slowly toward the answer to that question. But most people are so afraid of this issue that they retreat to kind of a false objectivity. But, I mean, it's an important question to ask. Right. Right. <clears throat> um, let's see here. We didn't hear. This was the dumb question. Yes. All right. Got that? <clears throat> uh, just, again. <clears throat> Is it correct to talk about hermeneutics more as the correct application? No. No. That I would say that's part of interpretation is the application, but it's the principle standing behind. That's very good. Oh, now here were a couple. Uh, Seifert, Dallas, a couple of you guys asked this. What did I mean about a high, middle, and low view of Scripture? Here's what I meant. <clears throat> you have a high view of Scripture. It's fully in every respect the Word of God. A low <coughs> view of Scripture <clears throat> is more or less that, well, and I would add this. It's fully the Word of God, and it is revelatory. It reveals God to us. In a low view of Scripture, it is essentially the words of man. And I would put it like this, that there is, in this kind of a view, um, it tends to see the Scriptures as... The record of developing human religious understanding. So, the scriptures are the record of our religious consciousness. Something like that. Now, It's true that they are that, but they're more than that. Now, a middle view of Scripture, in my opinion, is what you found around Cambridge when I was there in the 70s. And that was that uh, they were the word of God but were maybe untrustworthy in the hard parts. So that there would be, uh, you know, they're kind of basically very trustworthy, but when there were some knotty problems, they'd be ready to say, you know what, they just kind of made mistakes here or something like that. Uh, Whereas a high view of Scripture is always going to be hesitant to make that move. And you can function actually pretty well for the most part with, a, with that kind of middle view of scripture. <clears throat> now, uh, Bill, this was a uh, very interesting question that you raised. <clears throat> if there are a group of scholars who are all well-trained or taught the same methods of interpretation, would their differences still re- would differences still remain in the final interpretation? Yes. And the reason for it because there's differences in the third panel of the triptych the receptor <coughs> they're not going to i mean first of all nobody would be trained exactly the same you know but even if you pretty much had that some people would focus on let's say grammar other people would focus on vocabulary as they learn greek and so on like that but i mean more reasonably speaking you have a whole bunch of people who are well trained but even something as simple as the example I used in, class, in, in the book. Can a Hina clause express result? I tend to think not. A lot of grammarians think it can. Well, whether you think so or not is going to make a whole lot of difference when you come to certain passages, like in John 9. Who sinned, the disciples asked Jesus, concerning the man born blind, Kinnah, the man, was born blind. With the result that he was born blind, in order that he was born blind, it, it's going to make a lot of difference what you're doing there, just possibility-wise. <clears throat> I would also say that this whole issue that was raised by, um, about um, uh, Nick, you know, about your view of Jesus and all the rest of that's going to come into play. Oh, we've talked about this before. Seth... And Tom uh, talked about the interference on the on the model. We'll talk about that in Chapter Four a little bit. Okay. Um, now, uh, Josh, th- this is an interesting question. Listen to this: <clears throat> How is what you're saying different from other critical methods, uh, whether critical thinking analysis? or the criticism <coughs> historians place primary documents under. Traditionally, historians criticizing primary documents would, ha- would still attempt to be object, standing apart from the process, thinking that they're not actually contributing to what appears as data and so on like that. And the historical critical method, by the way, <clears throat> is, a, is absolutely a piece of modernism. It's absolutely it's stuck in the first panel of the triptych. Um, and then, then perhaps the most modernist procedure for interpretation is structuralism, which focuses on the center panel of the triptych and says that there are meanings to signifiers, to words, even if the people saying the stuff or writing the stuff were unaware of it. But we can objectively determine that. So these kind of traditional methods are all pretty much modernist methods. Okay? Uh, Now... Uh, A few of the questions, uh, more discussion-oriented. Now, this was was an interesting one from Knippo. The author claims that postmodernism is a sort of friend. Can Christianity ever become friends with any type of worldview or philosophy? I am, in effect, asking the same question that Tertullian asked, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Well... I think the answer to that is Christianity or any belief system or thinking has got to have some philosophical base or understanding. I I don't mean it searches around for one, but there's going to be some assumption about the nature of reality and the interpretation of it. Okay, I mean, even if it's something as simple as this physical world is all there is and then every once in a while God breaks into it and it does stuff that breaks its laws or, you know, something like that. So um, it's, it's not that there's modernism and postmodernism and then Christianity kind of floats above the system or something like that. You know, it's going to have its views of revelation, and they'll be congruent in some ways with some views and not congruent with other views. For example, I do think that Christianity has a great deal in common with postmodernism because it does not assume a closed universe where everything is totally subject to the all-seeing gaze of the human mind. So there's a lot of similarity between pre-modernism and post-modernism. And a lot of people have pointed this out. <clears throat> you might say that the Bible t- t- tends to take a pre-modern perspective. But I'm going to suggest later on in the course that there are some interesting combinations here. <clears throat> so there's no neutrality um, in that, Michael. You know, you can't just say... I. <clears throat> I'm not going to have a view of revelation. I'm not going to have a view of metaphysics. I'm just going to do what Christianity does. It's it's always got a relation to some form of thinking. But that's, I mean, it's a very important question for you to ask. Um, Now, here was a great one from Whedon, strangely enough. Does it matter if the texts were meant to be spoken and not written? You bet and a lot of people have picked up on this in the last 25 years. The notion that the texts are probably primarily intended to be heard rather than read. Yes, that, this is a very, very important point, as a matter of fact. And, uh, um, you know, here's, Andy, here's, here's one of the reasons why that is such a good and important point. <clears throat> If something is written, essentially, you have a text with a beginning and an end. And when you're here, you can look back to this spot and you can see, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew that here you have Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, in chapter 1. And in chapter 28, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always. Ooh, nice bookends, eh? This provides a good inclusio, as the Hebrew poetry guys would say. And in seeing this, Andy, we see something about the, now listen to the word I'm using, structure of the gospel. Words like structure betray that we are viewing, and notice what verb I actually naturally use there, that we are considering viewing the gospel visually. If it's essentially oral, this does not obtain. Now, instead of having structure, at which you can kind of stand outside and gaze upon it in an objective manner, if it's an essentially oral document, everything is now linear. Now, things come, and they come one after another, Okay, So no longer can you stop the flow and compare and say, ooh, hey, look at this. I'm going to look this up in a concordance, and I see that this word is used, and then this word is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It comes at you like this in one direction. As one of my professors used to say, the sainted Martin Charlemagne, that the important context for any pericope is the prior context. Because that's what you had when you went. Now, Andy, let me just give you a a really good example of what I'm talking about. If you're trying to figure out the meaning of the word pistis in Romans 1, in the phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed, ek pisteos from faith, ice. Piston to faith. If you're trying to figure out the meaning of faith, does it mean believing? Does it mean faithfulness? Does it mean the faith, the Christian faith? You know, something like this. <clears throat> You'll often hear or read comment- commentary say something like this. Pistis here uh, probably means... Uh, Subjective faith, because in chapter 3, verses 22 and following, we see faith being used in this way. Really? How interesting. Except when the Romans were reading the letter, they hadn't gotten there yet. See? So, in some ways, there's got to be able to be an understanding of Romans 1 uh, 17 just given the prior context. And remember, Paul hadn't gone to Rome. He hadn't gone to Rome. So um, it this makes a huge difference. It really makes a huge difference whether you are conceiving of these as oral or written documents. So thank you for that. Um, Chris Escher. <coughs> In my undergrad studies, one thing which we always tried to accomplish was to put off our own thoughts on a given subject. Okay, might be appropriate. The fact is, you can't. And what I am going to be aiming at in this course is not that you don't get involved, it's that it's two things. Number one, that you first realize you are involved, and number two, that you are involved in a helpful and productive way. The idea is not to abstract yourself from the process as much as you can. So that, that's uh, very good. <clears throat> now, uh, Dan, of uh I, found, I wanted to make sure that I, uh, uh, I acknowledged your paper here. This was a very uh, interesting final paragraph that you had. He says, I have come from a deaf culture, and the nonverbal that is always present with the (laughs) verbal communication can make or break a conversation. We're going to talk about that in Chapter 6. But what I wanted to acknowledge was your reference to um, deaf communication and to the fact that it really is, like for example, American Sign Language or something, you're really talking about another language. It's another language in another culture. And it's not just sort of English, and we sign the letters or something like that. I am going to the store. I store. You want to go?: Oh, yeah. There's, there's like, most of the sentence gone from it. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, interesting. interesting. But uh, we'll be talking about that a little further, but thank you for that reference. I think that's uh, um, uh, let's see. Chris, Spellgreen.. Thanks for your uh, reference here to your work at Boeing and the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, uh, This was good. Um, In one of your paragraphs here, you said, how do we go about discovering intent? Now, this is critical. How do we go about discovering intent? We'll talk about this explicitly in Chapter 10 Uh, because what happened was this. In modernism, everybody's thinking they can discover the intention of the author. In radical postmodernism, nobody thinks they can discover anything about intentionality. So we've got to get some happy medium here between, yep, we can tell exactly what the guy intended and only what he intended is what the thing means, on the one hand, and we don't have any idea. There's no way to get to it. Therefore, the text is a wax and nose that you can just twist around and make what you want. So I thank you for bringing up that, um, uh, that particular point. Um, uh, so I, I think that'll take us uh, uh, through these papers here, uh, the ones that I wanted particularly to comment on. There were other ones that had uh, very nice comments as well, but we don't have time to go through all of these. So... <coughs> Uh, taking those, we'll then move on to uh, Chapter 4A, uh, the, well, Part One, and the uh, and the Addendum 4A. <clears throat> now, if you'll take your books. From what I could tell, you guys did a good job in trying to master this <coughs> material. And we're going to, Addendum 4A, if you read the whole thing, uh, the whole of Chapter 4, Addendum 4A talks about the stuff that's in Chapter 4, but in a little more traditional terminology. When you get into Chapter 4 proper, I start using words like signifiers and conceptual signifieds and so on like that, and I start using technical terminology, and we'll talk about that Monday as to why I do that. Uh, But uh, 4 and 4A are totally congruent with one another. It's just that they're kind of coming from... uh, 4A, the addendum, is coming from a uh, uh, kind of historical viewpoint and then a more contemporary linguistic viewpoint in Chapter 4. Now, some of you... Um, uh, asked about the chart and so on, and I think basically I think basically what the problem was is that nobody could quite believe the analysis on page 107. <clears throat> so, some of you said this. Um, now, for example, uh, Malaki. I struggle to understand the total schema diagram on 107. Uh, Could you uh, uh, briefly summarize that? And uh, uh, kind of, I think you just were sort of incredulous that, that this would happen, but it's actually like that. That Plato's idea is that you kind of get the essence of things by breaking it down into its smallest constituent unit, so you actually find something out by getting there. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Is that why uh, when they showed us like the Greek text uh, in the special room up in the library, there isn't any space in between words just all bunched together. Is that an example of it?: How insightful is that, Sue? <laughs> I was going to I, I, I was going to get onto that. See. <laughs> Doesn't that sort of explain things, that the Greek is written without any spaces between the words? Why? Because if you look at that diagram, you'll notice that there is, in fact, no unit of word. The horizontal things has names or subjects, and then the hremata, the verbs or predicates, And then from there, it's broken down then into syllables, Tom. And then the various elements, the vowels and the stops and so on like that. But what we would tend to do is we would tend to put another stopping point between the horizontal line and syllables as words or something like that. (coughs) Well, they don't. Thus, when I did this crude example in English, the birds fly away. So away is like birds fly, and or the birds. So this is why, I mean, you don't know how insightful that comment of yours really is. This is why the vocable logos in Greek essentially does not mean word, even though every Greek book says that. It essentially, I mean, it can mean word, but it essentially means either discourse or reason, like the reason I'm doing something. Thus, in Acts chapter 1, Luke says, The first logon that I wrote Theophilus. All right? The first logon. Well, what does he mean? The word epideper in Luke 1.1? No. I mean, that's the first vocable. But the logos is the account. The account. So, um, I think that generally... uh, Uh, well, oh, let's take something like this, because this would have been translated in the Septuagint, Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Well, it's not like God went, Kai or something like that. You know, it's the utterance. Let there be light. It's the utterance of the Lord. So, uh, all of this, uh, Tom, explains, I think even the setup of the manuscripts. And and by the way, I don't know if you know this or not. When the ancients read, they always read out loud. They did not read silently. In fact, it was a mark of being a little unbalanced if you read silently. And the first well-known person to read silently was St. Ambrose. When Augustine went to see Ambrose in Milan, he reports that Ambrose was reading silently, and it was something noteworthy. Why did you read out loud? Because when you do that, the syllables and, and we, what we would say words start falling together. So I've done a fair amount of work on manuscripts and facsimiles like that, And you always, when you kind of get stuck or whatever, you always go to start reading out loud. It really helps you a lot that way. So thank you very much for that. Uh, Now, of all the points that I make today relative to Chapter 4 and Addendum 4A, This following is the most important point. Modernism is essentially reductionist. And so, essentially, the thought is if you can get to the smallest constituent. Parts, then you can understand the true nature of something. This has increasingly been shown not to be the case. Before I take more of your papers, I want to talk about this main point just a little bit. Let's go to the overhead camera. Take a look at this. Welcome to Fermi Lab. This is The Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory south of Chicago. I picked this up, I don't know, 30 years ago. Look what it says. They've got a picture of the accelerator thing. And then it says, second paragraph. Well, actually, first paragraph. What are things made of? The Greeks proposed that air, earth, fire, and water were the fundamental constituents. Democritus said all things were made of indivisible atomos, atoms. The search has continued down through the centuries. The names of Galileo, Newton, and Einstein symbolize significant progress. Now watch this, guys. In understanding the basic nature of the world in which we live. So in other words, if you get to, down to protons and neutrons, then get inside of the protons and neutrons to the quarks, and there are left-handed, right-handed, up-and-down quarks, and then you know, see if there are constituencies of them. If you can get to the essence of something, I'm sorry, to the smallest parts of something, then you truly understand it. That is a totally modernist idea. Now, this has increasingly come under attack. And I have here an article from the New York Science Times. You can see here it's December fourth, two 2001. This is great. New contenders for a theory of everything. <laughs> All right, now, <clears throat> let me read this. This is, this is well-written. In science's great chain of being, the particle physicists place themselves with the angels looking down from the heavenly spheres on the chemists, biologists, geologists, meteorologists, those who are applying, not discovering, nature's most fundamental laws. Everything, after all, is made from subatomic particles. Once you have a concise theory explaining how they work, the rest should just be filigree. Even the kindred discipline of solid-state physics, which is concerned with the mass behavior of particles, is often considered a lesser pursuit. Squalid state physics, Murray, Gell, Mann, discoverer of the quark, dubbed it. Others dismiss it as dirt physics. <clears throat> recently, recently, there have been rumblings from the muck. In a clash of scientific cultures, some prominent squalid staters... <clears throat> have been challenging the particle purists as arbiters of ultimate truth. The stakes are high. At issue is a deep epistemological matter having to do with what physics is. <clears throat> now, goes on to say that the science of the past seeks to distill the richness of reality into a few simple equations governing governing subatomic particles. Then it goes on. Many complex systems, the very ones the solid-stater study, appear to be irreducible, made of many interlocking parts. They display a kind of synergy, obeying higher... ...organizing principles that cannot be further (coughs) simplified. Carrying the idea even further, some solid-state physicists are trying to show that the laws of relativity, long considered part of the very bedrock of the physical world, are not platonic truths that have existed since time began. They may have emerged from the roiling of the vacuum of space much as supply and demand and other laws of economics emerge from the marketplace. If so, then solid-state physics, which specializes in how emergent phenomena occur, may be the most fundamental science of them all. We're in the midst of a paradigm change. Ours is not the prevailing view, but I think it will turn out to be the one that lasts. Now, Oz, as you would note, Oddly enough, just yesterday, there was a lecture at Washington University in St. Louis right next door, and this was the lecture. I couldn't get there fast enough. From quantum to consciousness, does emergence support the language of spirit? By Philip Clayton, and listen to the, look at the first paragraph. The framework of emergence is offering a radically different context for understanding the natural world. Scientists are discovering deep limitations on the project of reducing all phenomena downward to basic building blocks. The world turns out to form ever new phenomena through a continual interplay between parts and larger wholes. And look at, he says, a new paradigm of emergence opens interesting new spaces. Could it be that this upward emergence opens the door to the language of spirit? Now, I'll tell you what. This was one Rockham Sockham lecture yesterday. And essentially, he said what this solid-state physics guy was talking about. to Take something like superconductivity. When metals are, are, are subjected to extremely low temperatures, they actually have characteristics that are different than if they're not at that temperature. Well, you can't just reduce it to, let's say, the atoms and the quarks within those things because it's the entire context as a system that is critical here. Its characteristics only show up in the total context. So this is called emergence theory. This is exactly what we're arguing in addendum 4a, that essentially it's not the parts that are the key. It is the whole, that is, the parts as a whole. Not the parts, what would you say, kind of cabled together like marbles in a box. But parts as a whole. And then, thus, what is key toward the end of that chapter then, is point F on page 113. Point F, page 113, I've got it up now. Therefore, the meaning of the whole is not the sum of the meaning of the individual parts, but the meaning of the parts as a whole. And on the next page... There's that interesting quote from Aristotle. A discourse is a significant composite sound, some of whose parts signify something by themselves. Now, guys, let me just tell you, it is almost impossible... This class period today is is going to turn out to be exceedingly important for you. It's almost impossible to overestimate the importance of the point that I'm making, the difference between reduction and looking at a system as a whole. And it is for this reason. I have always feared that no matter how much mumbo-jumbo seems to be going on, that in the end, people walk out of this seminary thinking that what you actually do when you're studying a sermon or you're studying for a Bible class is, A, to do word studies, and, B, to go to etymology. Both are wrong. And they're wrong for completely macro-structural reasons. It's because the parts are not the key. The whole is the key. Uh, It's just so darn tempting to do this. Is to say, you know, like say, especially when it's a different language and the rest of the people are all thinking that... uh, you know, man means man, and then you know that air can mean man or husband. Woo, you know. So now you've got this great insight into this individual word, and so you start writing the individual points. But, but as a matter of fact, it is only the parts as a whole that are going to take you where you want to go. Now, there are a lot of interesting problems surrounding this. And on Monday, what we're going to do, on Monday we'll do the major part of Chapter 4. But as much as we cannot get to today, we'll pick up there, including your questions. But the fact of the matter is, this point of Addendum 4A is probably one of the Ten most important points in the book. That it's not about going to words and then about going to their etymology, which takes you even further back. Or you might put it like this. This is another way to put it. Origination of units does not give you the meaning of the whole. The origination of units does not give you the meaning of the whole. Now, unfortunately, back a few years ago, there was an interesting thing put out um, by our seminary that had to do with... um, being a servant, and so forth. Now, listen to this. Another word used to describe serving others in physical needs. Um, I'm sorry. A third word literally means under rower. And that word, by the way, in Greek is parette case <clears throat> and it gives a picture of service as learning from and following the leadership of a helmsman actually i 've heard this even expanded on an under rower he was one who, on a trireme sat on a lower d- sat on a lower deck, and there weren't any potties on there so the poop from the guys above would come through on the open decks and fall on the guys below so an under rower was someone who got shat upon and so on and the guys building this whole sermon on this thing well here's the fact folks and auretase is a rower, but they didn't really use auretase as an under rower. So that's the first problem. No common usage of that. But secondly, while that might be interesting, you're a little too interested in it. Thank you. It really doesn't tell you anything about... What the meaning of a word is in this particular passage of Saint Paul, even if it originally meant that, although that all that whole thing is dubious. It, it's like the word "gay," which when I was growing up in the '50s meant happy. You used it of Shirley Temple, the gay '90s it didn't mean the queer 90s. Okay, all of a sudden it means homosexual. Well, then about five years ago, my son tells me gay doesn't really mean that anymore. It just means silly or something like that. So things change this way. And there is no, when you are doing exegesis, you're not trying to get to the essence of anything. You're not trying to get to the smallest parts and then getting to the essence of the parts. It's emergence theory. We've got a complete unit and you got to get the meaning of the complete unit. Another way to put this, of course, is the issue of irreducible complexity. <clears throat> uh, I think maybe I'll stop at this point. Um, are there any uh, questions just in terms of what we went over today. um, We have your papers for next time. We'll take a look. And one of the things that I want to talk about um, as we introduce next time is I want to talk about how on earth you get going on any of this. In other words, if the whole is more key than the parts... How do you break into the system? I mean, do you have to see everything before you can see anything? So h- how does that, that whole business work? So we, we have here in Addendum 4A um, two, two key things. One is the issue of etymology, and some of you have asked questions like, can etymology never be helpful and stuff like that? And then the whole business of if it's this whole system, how do we get a grip on getting into the darn thing? So we'll, we'll pick it up there next time when hopefully my throat's a little bit. <clears throat> and um, then we'll also take your, uh, your papers. Now, for next time, make sure you hand in your papers for the main part of Chapter 4. Then. All right, thanks a lot.